0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of One Hundred Fathoms Under, by John Blaine. Volume 2 Chapter 3 The Man with the Broken Nose Professor Gordon banged the screen door loudly and shouted, Hit the deck! Rise and shine! It's a new day! Get up! Startled to such rude wakefulness... Rick sat up and blinked in the sunlight, that streamed through the windows. What is it? Roll out, Gordon ordered cheerfully. It's just time for a quick swim and breakfast before we go to the docks. Scotty and Chata sat up, their sleepiness gone, at the reminder that today would see the entire party united with their equipment. In a moment, they were out of their pajamas and into bathing trunks, racing for the waterfront. As they passed Turk Mullane's cottage, the captain called a greeting. Rick went headlong into the water and headed out into the sea with a powerful crawl stroke. He felt like a million this morning. In a little while, they would meet Hobart Zircon, take the equipment from the Aloha, and start getting it ready for the trip to Quangara. Today, they would have a chance to see the tarpon, too, and get acquainted with their new home. Refreshed and fully awake after their swim, the boys hurried to their cottage showered and dressed. Then they joined the scientists at breakfast. Turk Malane had already eaten and was on his way to the trawler. Breakfast was hurried because the SS Aloha was due to dock early. Professor Gordon had already made arrangements with the port officials for immediate unloading and had ordered a trailer truck to transport the equipment. By the time Dr. Warren had picked them up in his station wagon and taken them to the dock, The great white bulk of the steamship was in sight and tugs were warping her into the berth. The scientists and the boys watched as the gangway was lowered and passengers started coming off. A band had materialized and was giving out lustily with Aloha Oe. Flower women, almost hidden under fragrant flower lays, were everywhere. Rick watched for Professor Hobart Zircon and saw him coming down the gangway. The big scientist's voice rose well above the noise. Well, a most imposing reception committee. Greetings, my friends. Everything about Professor Zircon was big. From his voice to his massive frame, he radiated energy and good spirits as he shook hands all around, greeting Rick, Scotty, and Chata with the warmth of an old trail, comrade. Then he got down to business. I assume everything is arranged. Can we unload it once, if the port officials are agreeable? You've seen them? How about the truck? All arranged, Hartson Brandt told him. Suppose you and I go aboard, Hobart. I'll stand by the winch operator while you take charge in the hold. Gordon will see that the load is distributed properly on the truck. Rick and Scotty can help him. Chada, take Professor Zircon's baggage checks, please, and see that his personal luggage is put aboard the truck. Is there something I can do? Dr. Warren asked. Yes, Paul. Would you take these duplicate manifests and check off the crates as they're loaded onto the truck? Hartson Brandt handed Dr. Warren the lists. Did you see the truck outside? Gordon asked Rick. Yeah, then direct the driver, if you will. We'll want the trailer platform right under the forward deck and parallel with the edge of the dock. The platform trailer looked big enough to carry a house, but the Hawaiian driver swung it into place with effortless skill as Rick directed him. On the deck of the Aloha, the cargo hatch was already off and the winch operator was standing by. Hartson Brandt was at his side. Almost at once, the big wooden crates began to arrive, swinging down from the deck into the cargo nets. Rick, Scotty, and Professor Gordon pushed them into place on the forward end of the platform. There was a short breathing spell, and then four smaller boxes arrived. Rick saw by their markings that they contained personal equipment and stuff for camping. The cargo net arrived with three round objects wrapped in heavy burlap. Rick identified those as cables, one for the salvage arms of the submobile and the other for electric power. That's all, Dr. Warren announced, consulting his lists. Now for the submobile. Rick watched, his head tilted back until his neck creaked. Up on deck, the winch turned slowly the creaking of the metal blocks showing an increased strain on it. Little by little, a silvery mound like the back of a small whale came into sight. The submobile was lifted clear of the deck and dangled in midair. The submobile was imposing. It had the shape of a small dirigible, ten feet long and six feet at its greatest diameter. Steel plates concealed and protected the fused quartz observation ports and the places where the sonar scope The extension arms, the propellers, and the other equipment would be attached to the blunt nose. It was bolted into a steel framework cradle that gave it a solid resting place when it sat on deck or on the sea bottom. The winch operator swung the submobile over the side and began to lower it by inches, while Professor Gordon ran anxiously from one place to another, trying to see if it would land properly. Rick noted that a crowd had gathered, and he heard a buzz of speculation. Midget submarine! one man suggested. Nah, it's a new kind of buoy. Rick saw that the submobile was going to land just right. He marveled at the skill of the winch operator and moved back against a wall for a clearer view of the ship's deck. The submobile descended an inch at a time and settled into place with feather lightness. Rick started to wave at his father, but a commotion a few feet away distracted him. He turned to see what all the noise was about. A dock worker who held a big packing case was arguing with a Japanese standing in a doorway. Come out of there, the dock worker shouted. Blast it, can't you read? No loitering in this doorway. Now come out. This is a busy spot. I got to get inside before I drop this thing. The Japanese started to move away. Then he saw Rick and hastily drew back. The angry dock worker put down the case he held and reached in with a brawny arm and pulled. The Japanese came out of the doorway like a cork out of a bottle. He cast a swift glance at Rick, then scuttled out through the gateway. Rick watched him, puzzled. He walked up to the dock worker. What was he doing? That guy, just standing in the way. He was blocking traffic. Funny he didn't want to move. Yeah, looks like he wanted to hide. Queer people, those Japanese. Never know what they're going to do. The dock worker picked up his case and carried it into the warehouse as Rick held the door for him. From what had that Japanese man been hiding? Or from whom? Rick had the uncomfortable feeling that he had been the one from whom the man had hid. He remembered how the fellow had ducked back into the doorway at the sight of him. Why should he act like that? There was nothing wrong with watching the submobile. Plenty of others were doing it. But he was sure of one thing. He wouldn't forget the man's face. At some point in the past, a sharp edge, maybe a samurai sword, had struck the man's nose on the bridge, breaking it and leaving a bluish scar. The others were already at work lashing the load of crates to the trailer. Heavy ropes were passed over the submobile, through the steel ring at the top, and then under the trailer platform. Its own weight would keep it in place, but the spindrift scientists had learned to take extra precautions. Hartson and Brant called. who will volunteer to ride with the load. We will, Rick said hastily. Scotty, Chata, and I. All right, we'll meet you at the ship. Have your driver follow Dr. Warren's car. Rick gave the driver instructions and climbed up onto the crates with Scotty and Chata. The trailer rolled out through the pier gate and into the street. Why are you frowning? Scotty asked. Rick told him of the Japanese man who had acted so strangely. You suppose his actions had anything to do with the equipment? Scotty asked. I don't know, Rick answered. His being in the doorway might have been a coincidence. Only why did he duck back when he saw me? Perhaps you frightened him, Charles said. It could happen. When I first saw the famous Brunt face, I was frightened too. That's enough out of you, Gunga Din, Rick retorted. But seriously, we better keep our eyes open. We can't afford to take chances, Scotty agreed. The big trailer moved through traffic, the object of much attention from pedestrians. They like its looks, Scotty said, winking at Rick. Too bad we can't leave it shiny. Chata took the bait. Are we painting it? Yep, bright red. But why are we going to paint it red? Because of the big fish we might run into. Scotty explained seriously. If we left a shiny silver, some big fish might mistake it for a can of sardines. Chata nodded gravely. Oh, it is most true, but painting red is also a mistake. Maybe along comes a big fish and thinks it is a radish. Rick laughed. He's too sharp for you, Scotty. Sharp like a dick, Chada agreed, chuckling. Tack, Scotty corrected. I'll blunt his sharp edge one of these days. The trailer truck followed Dr. Warren's station wagon across the bridge over the Ala Wai Canal, turned right, and came to a stop next to a row of piers. The boys jumped down, and Rick looked around eagerly for his first glimpse of the ship, which was to be their home. There she is, he exclaimed, pointing at the distinctive lines of the trawler. Turk Turkmalane appeared in the doorway of the pilot house and waved. Come aboard, he called. The boys accepted the imitation with alacrity. Turk shook hands all around, then introduced them to the thin, bald man who had been with him on the pavilion. This is Digger Sears, boys. Mate of the tarpon for this cruise. He'll show you around. Three husky blokes to make seamen of, Digger said jovially. Let's hop to it, lads. I'm thinking you'll be wanting to see what kind of dinkin tub you shipped aboard of. The tarpon was a typical trawler, the superstructure set forward, leaving considerable deck space aft. On that open space where huge nets with tons of fish had once been dumped. The submobile was going to rest. The heavy booms that had been designed to take the weight of loaded nets would serve to handle the submobile, which was surprisingly light for its size due to special lightweight alloys used in its construction. Below decks in what had once been fish holds, Cabins had been constructed. In one space forward, a big army-type refrigerator had been installed. Rick opened the door and went inside, shivering in the sudden low temperature. The refrigerator was jammed with food, meat hung on hooks up by the freezing pipes, and down lower crates of fresh vegetables rested. There were crates of oranges, too, and an open barrel of apples near the door. Only a few feet from the cabins, Scotty said with satisfaction. Handy for a late night stack!" Rick's retort was stilled by the sudden appearance of a smiling black face. "This is Otera," the Garcia said, "only a bush boy from down Hebrides way, but a dinkin' cook for all that. Otera, say a cheery word to the lads!" Otera had bushy, frizzy hair that stood straight up like a starched mop, and a smile that seemed to light up the hold. Dis veller, master, want kai kai? he inquired hopefully. That's best de more, Scotty explained. Pigeon English, most people call it. It's a real language instead of just bad English. He wants to know if we three want anything to eat. Digger Sears looked at Scotty, long faced, thoughtful. You been in the islands? he asked. Marines, Scotty said briefly. Aye, oh, fighting lot them Yank Marines. Most as good as the Aussie 9th. Rick had heard of the famous Australian Ninth Division. Were you in the Ninth? he asked. I should think you would have been in the Navy. Not off, Digger exclaimed. I figured I'd end up on a limey ship for sure. Don't like limeys. I'm an Aussie. No limey, Navy for this bloke. Rick grinned more at Digger's accent than at his explanation. What is up there? Chad asked, pointing forward potlocker, and a glory hull with odds and ends of junk, Digger said. Up on the deck, the boys were introduced to the three seamen. They looked and dressed alike in worn dungarees and soiled shirts. They were dark of skin and rather sullen. Scotty christened them Dewey, Huey, and Louie after Donald Duck's three nephews, because, as he explained, they look alike and act alike, and they're sailors. Besides, Rick added, we could never remember those names. The three seamen, Gordon explained later, were part Hawaiian, part Portuguese, and part something else he hadn't figured out yet. Their names were Hawaiian and seemed to consist mostly of vowels and the letter K. The boys went back ashore to find the trailer already unloaded with the aid of the boatyard operator who had brought his ship crane into service. The crates were being stacked around the walls of a vacant boathouse directly behind the tarpon. What are we going to do with the submobile? Rick asked his father. Stand up next to the boathouse door. The weather can't hurt it, and we'll need the room in the boathouse for unpacking. Scotty asked, How about guards? I've arranged that with Malane. The crew will stand watches until we sail. It won't be hard on them. They'll just look out at the stuff once in a while. Rick was satisfied. The boatyard was a pretty public place, and the equipment was within 50 feet of the trawler. It would be safe. The submobile was the last to be unloaded, The crane, designed to lift good-sized boats completely out of the water, lifted the undersea craft with ease and placed it against the boathouse wall. After a quick lunch, prepared by the smiling Hartz and Brandt consulted his watch. Still early. We could uncrate our personal equipment and stow it aboard. That would leave only the big stuff to uncrate tomorrow. Good idea, Gordon agreed. All hands turned to and dragged the smaller crates to the center of the boathouse floor. Rick and Scotty found tools and began ripping open the wooden crates while Gordon showed the others which cabins had been assigned to them. Chada returned and reported that the boys had been given the forward cabin right next to the refrigeration room. Rick is an aviator, the Hindu boy said, referring to the fact that Rick was a licensed pilot. He should get the high bed, maybe. You mean the upper bunk? Now nah, we'll toss for it. Rick took a coin from his pocket while Scotty and Chada followed suit. Odd man out gets the upper bunk, Rick said. They flipped and Scotty's coin came down tails while the other two showed heads. Okay, Scotty said. I'll do the high flying on this cruise. Now let's get our own stuff out of the crates and take it aboard. The boys had been allotted one locker box apiece for their clothing. Each found his own and removed it from the wooden shipping crate and carried it to the cabin on the trawler. Scotty sniffed. Now I know what Dr. Warren meant. This place smells like a fish market. Yeah, I noticed it, Rick agreed. It's not bad. The pain smell covers over most of it. Suddenly, Chada held up his hand for silence. What is that noise? Rick heard a scuffling from somewhere overhead, and then a yell of pain. Instantly, he was on his way to the deck ladder, Scotty and Chada on his heels. It's forward, Scotty said. Pots and pans fell with a terrific crash. Rick sprinted for the galley and found the door and looked in. Otera, the cook, was on the floor in a litter of cooking utensils. He was holding his head in both hands and cringing away from Digger Sears, who was standing over him. You blessed scum, Digger roared. Give me any of your lip and I'll knock your head clean off. Blimey if I won't. What's going on, Rick demanded. Otara started to get to his feet, but Digger's fist knocked him back to the floor again. The cook subsided, whimpering. Stop that! What are you hitting him for? Rick said angrily. I'll teach the blighter a lesson. Give me any of his bloomin' back talk, and I'll carve his tongue out, Digger growled. Hartson Brandt demanded from the doorway, What's happening here? Digger's face changed at the sight of the scientist. A filthy bloke never washes his pots. I took him up on it. And he gave me back chat. Is there any reason for striking him? Hearts and Brandt asked coldly. See the only language these blasted gooks now,' Digger said sullenly. From now on, you'll keep your hands off him and off everyone else on this ship, Hearts and Brandt snapped. Digger's pale eyes flamed. You ain't the captain, he retorted. I'm the leader of the expedition and I'm responsible for everyone aboard. You'll take orders from me, Sears as well as from Captain Mullane. And if you don't like that idea, pack your duffel and get out now. We can find another mate. For a moment, Digger's eyes locked with the scientists. Then he looked away. Oy, oi, oi! he said, and pushed out of the galley. Hartson Brandt looked at the boys. Where's Captain Mullane? I think he went ashore, sir, Scotty said. He was telling Professor Gordon something about checking up on the delivery of diesel oil. All right. I'll have a talk with him when he gets back. Harson Brandt turned abruptly and went aft. Rick helped Otero to his feet. The native cook managed a feeble grin, rubbing a prominent bruise on his forehead. It won't happen again, Rick told him kindly. You don't have to be afraid of the any anymore. Otera brightened. He looked at Scotty and Chata and a smile flashed, and he bobbed his head gratefully. This a young master, he get plenty good kai-kai, my word. The boys left him alone to straighten up his galley and walk toward the stern of the ship. Well, he's going to be our friend, Scotty said. He said he'd see that we were well fed. What's that my word stuff, Rick asked. Well, it's his way of being emphatic, sort of like a verbal exclamation point, Scotty explained. The scientists had stowed their personal stuff and were uncrating the cases of camping equipment. There were two pyramid tents, complete with metal tent stakes, cots, pads, mosquito netting, and a small electric lighting system. The scientists hoped to find a suitable place for a base camp, since there would not be enough room on the ship for cleaning and examining large bits of the temple they hoped to find. In a short time, the camping equipment was stowed in a spare gear room aboard the ship and Hartson Brandt announced it was time to return to the hotel for dinner. Mulane hasn't returned, Brandt said. However, tomorrow will be soon enough to talk with him. I don't intend to stand for any brutality on this expedition. Zircon, Gordon, and the boys nodded silent agreement. Rick debated telling his father about the Japanese man he had seen at the dock, and decided not to. Hartson Brandt was upset over the incident aboard the ship. There was no point in giving him something else to worry about unless that Japanese man's action proved to have some bearing on the expedition. Chapter 4 Caught by Infrared Rick was feeling restless and he couldn't account for it. Everything was going smoothly. The equipment was well guarded. Nothing remained to be done but the uncrating and stowing of the heavy submobile equipment and electronic equipment. They would sail on Saturday. Perhaps his uneasiness grew out of the fact that everything was progressing too well. There had never before been a spindrift experiment or expedition without something unforeseen cropping up. The very nature of scientific projects seemed to invite the unexpected. The incident of the dock stuck in his mind, too. He had tried to think up reasons for the Japanese man's strange actions, but none came to mind. That in itself was disturbing, because he had learned that there was a reason behind every event, and he was afraid that the man's reason for hiding was somehow connected to the expedition. Scotty came up to where Rick sat on the cottage steps. Let's take a walk, Scotty invited. It's a nice night. All right. Where's Chata? He's in with the professors. They're talking archaeology, way over my head. They walked down the path toward the waterfront, noticing that most of the cottages were dark. I guess people don't stay home nights, Scotty said. It's too early for anybody to be in bed. Rick looked toward Turk Mullane's cottage. Yeah, the skipper's out too. Decided whether you like him or not? I'm still reserving judgment. Ask me again in a week. The hotel waterfront was dark, the pavilion a black bulk against the faintly phosphorescent water. But out on the reef there were flickering lights. Rick watched them for a moment. I wonder what those are. They're torches, Scotty explained. Hawaiian fishing by torchlight. They'll be moving in toward the shore in a while and you can see them. What are they catching? Search me. Squid? Manta ray? Small fish of some kind? It was a colorful sight, and now and then out beyond the reef, Rick saw the lights of a vessel. We ought to have a picture of it, he said idly. Scotty took him up on that. Why not? We have a camera. We could get some good shots with infrared. Wow, you're the eager beaver. You could get the camera. Just to show you my heart's in the right place, I'll do that. Scotty trotted back up the path toward the cottage. He returned presently, accompanied by Chada. Scotty was carrying the speed graphic. He had attached the flash gun and inserted an infrared film pack. Extra bulbs were in his pocket. I brought company, he greeted Rick. Chata wanted to see the torch fisherman. The Hindu boy watched the moving torches for a while and then he asked, But how are they catching fish with torches? Scotty took the infrared bulb out of the flash gun and reinserted it more firmly. Rick grinned. He knew that Scotty was thinking up some fantastic yarn. It's the heat, Scotty said at last. Heat? How do you catch fishes with heat? Well, I'm surprised at you, Scotty said gravely. You should be able to figure that one out. Look, the torches are hot, right? Well, the fishermen hold them close to the water. And what happens? Water gets warm. Fish get warm. Now do you see? Child thought it over. No, I do not see yet. Try some more. Okay, what happens when you get warm? You have to sweat, don't you? Well, then how can you sweat under the water? Well, you can't. So the fish come to the surface to sweat and the fishermen hit him over the head with clubs. That is a very good system, Chahda said soberly. But more better if they use onions, I think, like in India. Rick waited, smiling in the darkness. Chada had fallen for Scotty's tall tail and had put out bait of his own. Scotty knew the bit about onions was bait, too, but he couldn't suppress his lively curiosity for very long. And sure enough, after a long silence, Scotty asked, How do they use onions? For bait? Sort of bit, Charter agreed. They put peeled onions on strings and lower them into the water. Makes the poor fish's eyes water. Poor fish come to the top to cry and bop. Get hit on the head with a club also. Do you see? Right, I see, Scotty said with a chuckle. Rick noticed the torches were coming closer. Think we could get a shot now, he asked. Well, we could try, Scotty said. Here, you're the camera expert. Rick took the speed graphic and shot a picture of the nearest torch. With luck, the developed film would show the fisherman as well. Infrared could see things that the eye couldn't. It was late when the fisherman finally moved out of sight, and Rick rose and stretched. He set the camera for one more picture, intending to take a shot of the open sea, thinking that he might get an interesting view of the surf on the reef. Then he decided against wasting film. You guys want to turn in? He asked his friends. We'll have a lot to do tomorrow. It's all right with me, Scotty agreed. Me also, Chada said. They walked up the path through almost total darkness. Then as they neared their cottage, Scotty suddenly stopped. Someone's in the shrubbery to our left, he whispered in Rick's ear. Rick Tess listening, but his ears weren't jungle-trained as Scotty's were. Chada quietly had moved close to the shrubs. Suddenly he jumped into them, giving a wild yell. There was an instant response. A man hurtled out into the path and fell, but was up on his feet and running before Rick or Scotty could grab him. Instinctively, Rick brought his camera up and clicked the flash button just as he saw the blur of a white face. After him! Scotty called. Chada was already sprinting up the path after the intruder. Rick ran to the cottage steps, put the camera down, and joined in the chase. He had no doubts about chasing the man, whoever he was. If he turned out to be a guest, he would have some explanation. If he wasn't a guest, then there must have been some illegal reason for hiding in the shrubbery. The fleeing intruder crashed through a hedge and ducked between two cottages and ran down another path. Rick and Scotty hit the hedge at the same time and somehow got in each other's way and crashed to the soft turf. Here, yeah, shot called. He had cut around another cottage and was still after the intruder. Rick and Scotty got to their feet and raced after him. "'Rick saw that they were running back toward the waterfront. "'Then he heard Chada's voice again to the right. "'The man had to be running along the seawall. "'The chase ended abruptly at a high board fence. "'Chada was running along the fence looking for some sign of the quarry. "'In a moment he called. "'I think you went over.' "'Well, up you go then,' Scotty said. "'He held out his cupped hands. "'Rick put his foot in them and jumped, "'coming to rest on the top of the fence.' He looked down into what was evidently a big lumberyard with piles of drying wood. There were a dozen exits the intruder might have taken. They would never catch him now. I'm coming back down, he called, and dropped lightly to the ground beside Scotty and Chada. He explained what he had seen. I wonder what he was up to, Scotty mused. Something queer, otherwise he wouldn't have run. I was thinking maybe I'd jump into the bush and scare him out, and then you'd catch him. Chad explained. He moved too fast, Rick said ruefully. He caught us flat-footed. Well, did you get a picture? I saw the bulb go off, Scotty asked. It ought to be a good one, Rick told him, starting back to the cottage. I shot it just as he looked back. Let's go develop it and see. Developing stuff is on the tarpon, Scotty reminded him. Sure, but it's not very late. Rick put the camera away, first tucking the exposed film pack into his pocket. Then they hiked to the boatyard, finding it ablaze with lights. Otero was sitting on the afterdeck, smoking a stub of a pipe. We have something we want to do, Rick told him. Where are the others? Otero shook his head. "No save ye. Me one fellow, watch boy. Good fellow, too much. He grinned widely. He doesn't know where the others are. He's on watch. Scotty translated. You know where the developing kit is? Yeah, I put it away myself, Rick said. He led the way below decks and took the compact developing kit from the storage room. There was running water in the bathroom and room to lay out the trays. Rick filled them from the bottles of prepared fluid and then switched out the light and went to work. Okay, let's have the light back on, he said presently. He took the film out of the water bath and waved it back and forth, shaking off the excess liquid. Then he held it to the light. He had caught the running figure from the waist up, and the face looking back over the shoulder was plain. A queer sensation traveled down his spine. Clearly visible, even in the negative film, was a sharp break in the bridge of the man's nose, and the eyes had a slant look under stiff black hair. That's the Japanese man, Rick exclaimed. The same one I saw at the pier this afternoon. Chapter 5 The Warning To the amazement of and Brandt, when he came out of his cottage at seven in the morning, the three younger members of the expedition were already up. Led by Rick, they were sniffing around in the shrubbery like three eager beagles. The scientist walked over to where the boys hunted. Are you looking for edible roots or fruits? He asked dryly. I can't imagine anything but food that would get you up this early in the morning without prompting. Rick looked up from his examination of the soft turf. Oh, hi, Dad. We're looking for... Gosh, I don't know what we're looking for. A a clue, I guess. The scientist had been asleep when the boys returned from the trawler, and Rick had decided not to disturb them. Now he told his father the whole story, beginning with his first sight of the Japanese with the broken nose on the dock. And he concluded, He was hiding in the shrubbery next to Turk Turkmalane's cottage. Hartson Brandt studied the film negative thoughtfully and then handed it to Hobart Zircon, who had just come out of his cottage. He outlined Rick's story briefly. What do you think, Hobart? The big scientist examined the negative. I don't know what to think. You don't believe it's just a coincidence, do you, Rick? It could be, Rick admitted. But you have often said yourself that you don't believe in that kind of coincidence. Maybe Turk Malane knows something about the Jap, Scotty suggested. He was hiding near Turk's cottage. I'm blessed if I can think of any reason why this Japanese fellow should be interested in us, Harson Brand said. Suppose we have breakfast. We can ask Captain Malane for his opinion later. Professor Gordon joined them as they walked toward the dining room, and Rick had to tell the story again. Gordon, like the others, had nothing to suggest. It wasn't until they reached the trawler that they had a chance to talk to Turk. The broad-shouldered Cap had listened to Rick's story, then took the film and looked at it. Never seen the man before, he said finally. I'm sure I don't know what he was doing near my cottage. Couldn't have been your cottages that interested him. They're close together. Rick shrugged. Anything was possible, since they had no evidence either way. He watched Turk examine the negative again before handing it back. And somehow he got the impression that the captain wasn't being entirely Frank. He was too casual about this whole business. Arts and Brant called the Spindrift group together. Turk Mullane informs me that he can get clearances today, so we can sail in the morning. The diesel oil was delivered right after we left last night, and all ship supplies and food are aboard. Our own personal gear is aboard as well, along with camping supplies. If we pitch in, the equipment can be aboard by nightfall. He assigned them to various tasks. Rick and Scotty were to uncrate the equipment, and Chada was to check off each piece against a master list. Rick got further instructions on the proper order in which to open the cases to make storage simpler. Then he and Scotty went to work. The salvage apparatus for the submobile was first. The uncrated would look like a small steam shovel with powerful jaws. It operated on the same principle. It had been designed for picking up small objects on the ocean floor. and had no other name than the Scoop. In the same crate were two extension arms that operated on the scissors principle. Each was equipped with a powerful ring snap that would hold the steel salvage cable. Other cases contained the brass ball from which the sonoscope impulses would be transmitted, electric motors, three bronze propellers, a host of electronic equipment, oxygen cylinders, chemicals, and specially prepared explosive charges. Rick found one case without markings and called Chata over. The Hindu boy consulted his list, checking case numbers against the diminishing pile of crates. It's not here, he reported. Rick looked the odd case over. It was smaller than the others, and not very heavy. He called the scientists who were storing the submobile equipment in accessible places on the ship. Extra case? That's odd, Hartson Brandt said. Professor Gordon came out of the hold in time to hear the remark. What extra case? Well, that's probably mine. He went to the boathouse with Rick and looked it over. Yeah, that's mine. A few necessities I collected in Honolulu. I had them put in a wooden box and left them here to be taken aboard. Stole with the rest. That's a relief, Rick said. For a minute I thought maybe that Japanese guy had planted a bomb or something. He ripped open the case and Gordon began enumerating the items as they were taken out. This stuff is for keeping us healthy, he said. I tried to think of everything. First of all, an ultraviolet sterilizing lamp. That's for treatment of any fungus infections we pick up, and also for sterilizing any native fruits or vegetables we might find. That's a good idea, Scotty said approvingly. Gordon took out a large pack-type spray gun. It had a cylindrical tank with a harness to carry it on one's back, a pump for building up air pressure, and a hose with a trigger release. This is 4DDT. If the mosquitoes are bad, we can spray the area and maybe cut down the population of malarial carriers. The DDT is in those cans. I got powder rather than liquid since it's cleaner to use. The spray will handle it. Scotty nodded approval. I should have thought of those things myself, he said. Rick picked out two smaller cans. What are these? Fluoride powder. That's to prevent tooth trouble, which is prevalent on the islands. I got together with a biochemist friend of Dr. Warren's, and we worked out the formula for mixing the fluoride with regular tooth powder. You'll also find a spare first aid kit in there. Rick grinned. We could practically stock a hospital, not to mention a bug extermination plant. It's not funny, Rick, Scotty said. I spent a long time in Navy hospitals with malaria because we didn't have enough insecticide to keep the mosquito population down and I once spent six weeks in bed because there were no treatment lamps to check the spread of a fungus infection I picked up. I also might say that now I have four less teeth. Rick apologized and helped carry the equipment aboard, stowing it with the camping gear. Professor Zircon brought Scotty's rifle, which had been packed with some of the electronic equipment. You'll want this in your cabin, he boomed. Might get a shot at a cannibal or two, huh? Could be. Scotty grinned. He took the rifle, which was protected by a plastic cover, down to the cabin. Rick followed, intending to start unpacking his locker box. Chata had the same idea. His locker box was open, and the Hindu boy was crawling behind it, reaching under the bunk. Did you lose something? Rick asked. A piece of paper. It blew from the bunk. But there were no portholes in the below-deck's cabins, but a ventilator blew in a constant stream of fresh air. I've got it! He stood up holding a scrap of brown paper. I was unpacking, and I saw this blue by. He frowned suddenly, his eyes on the paper. What is this? Rick took it and turned it over, examining it. It was an irregular scrap of ordinary wrapping paper, and on one side were two words, crudely printed in pencil. Walk out, Asamo. Rick handed the scrap of paper to Scotty. Look at this. Doesn't make any sense, Scotty said after looking it over. Asamo. Rick thought carefully. Doesn't that sound Japanese? Maybe, Chata agreed. But what is walk out? Watch out, maybe, Scotty said. Spelled wrong? Rick agreed. I think you're right, it could be. It should be watch out, Asamo, but what is it? A warning? He remembered the Japanese with the broken nose. Could his name have been Asamo? Could be, responded Scotty. But what if this is only a scrap torn from something else? Let's not go off half-cocked. Well, that made sense to Rick. We're still up in the air with that business at the hotel last night. This is probably just a scrap of paper that happened to have a couple of words on it. Maybe, Chata said doubtfully. I wouldn't mention it to the others. Scotty said. But just in case something is up, let's be extra watchful. And I think it might be a good idea if we search the ship before sailing. What do you say? I thought of that already, Rick agreed. We could do it without anybody noticing. Just sort of prowl around until we covered everything. Digger Sears called from outside the cabin door. "Hey, blokes in there. All hands needed on deck We're bringing the submobile aboard. The boys hurried out and found the mate in the passageway. So upside, Digger growled, you need it on the lines. On the shore, the ship crane had been moved into position, and its cable hooked through the lift ring of the submobile. A circle of steel like an enormous donut firmly welded to the top of the undersea cradle. Heavy ropes had been attached to the cradle to aid in hauling it into position. Professor Gordon had consulted with Turk Mullane on the proper position, and chalk marks had been sketched on the open afterdeck. At a signal, the crane operator lifted the submobile into the air and moved it to the ship. The spindrift party and the crew took the trailing ropes and directed by Hanson Brandt, swung the submobile into line with the chalk marks. At a signal, the operator dropped the unwieldy thing to the deck, only an inch or two and out of position. It was slid onto the marks by main strength and bolted down with heavy screws an inch in diameter. Rick looked at it with satisfaction. Nothing would budge the submobile now unless the whole ship broke up. By supper time, everything was in place aboard. The boathouse was cleaned up and everything was ship Turk Mullane returned from Honolulu with a clean bill of health and clearance papers for the ship. We're set now. Name your hour for leaving, Turk stated. Ten o'clock, and told him. That'll give us ample time for a good breakfast. "'Now, Captain, about guards, will you arrange for two men to stand by tonight?' Turk looked at him keenly. "'Are you afraid of trouble?' "'Not necessarily,' Hartson Brent returned. "'But we've learned not to take chances.' Rick thought that Turk seemed amused. However, the captain agreed readily enough. "'Tell you what, I'll check out of the hotel tonight and move aboard. Digger and I will take turns standing watch alongside the regular crew.' That would be very good of you, Zircon boomed. If you still think there's something to watch out for, Turk continued, we'll have a look at the ship in the morning just before we sail. Then your minds can be at rest. It's a good idea, Professor Gordon agreed. I doubt that these precautions are necessary, but why take chances? It's just as easy to be on guard. Turk Malane turned to Rick. Get a good night's sleep, he said jovially. It's high seas for us tomorrow. As they walked to the hotel, Scotty grinned at Rick. Regular piles, you and Turk. I don't like it, Rick said shortly. There was something false about the captain's heartiness, but maybe that was just his way. What do you think about him suggesting we search the ship? Funny he should have said that. Maybe Digger heard us talking, Shada suggested. He told Tuck, and Tuck thought maybe he'd better suggest search to show he is on the level. You know, our Oriental wizard might have something there, Scotty agreed. Anyway, Rick, we don't care who orders a search as long as it's done, right? Yeah, that's right. But I'll be happier when we're underway. After dinner, the entire Spindrift party gathered in the pavilion. Dr. Warren had arrived in time, too joined them, and, at the request of Hartson Brandt, was discussing their destination. I wish I was one of the people who could go with you, he said. I envy you the chance of seeing what Alta Yuan is like. However, we are tied up at present in a half-dozen research projects. Well, I'm going to feel rather responsible acting as an expedition archaeologist, Professor Gordon said. After all, it's just a hobby with me. Oh, you're much too modest. Dr. Ward smiled. Yes, Gordon hides his light under a bushel, Hudson Brandt said. Archaeology has been a hobby of his since college. He used to spend his vacations in odd places, doing excavations and exploring. And during the war, he managed to find time from his Navy duties to look around the islands quite a bit. Yes, quite a bit, Dr. Ward agreed. I think he'll find, however, that Quangara will be his most interesting task date. You doubtless know the history of Alta Yawad. But we know that, but perhaps I can sum it up for you. Please do, Zerkhan requested. I was so involved in electronics problems I neglected the other side of the project. Well, briefly, we first came across a reference to the Quangara Temple on a plaque in the ruins of the Khmer civilization at Angkor, in French Cambodia. The plaque told of heavy storms that blew an explorer's ship off its course and carried it far to the east. The explorer discovered a land peopled by a race of white warriors. The warriors were not very hospitable, according to the tale. The explorer and his friends narrowly escaped, becoming Sunday dinner. The name of the island they found was Alta Yuan, a name that was said to come from the great temple where these white warriors worshipped. There was no further mention of Alta Yuan for a number of years. Then, what about expeditions to the Marianas? Stopped by Kwadgara and found two interesting stones on a small peninsula. "'One was perfectly plain, no inscription on it. "'The other had been inscribed. "'The plain one was left, but the other was brought back. "'It was not until a few months later "'that we discovered by laborious translation that it mentioned alta Yuan. "'We also discovered that these large stones were the outposts of a temple. "'The obvious conclusion was that we had found the fabled temple of Alta Yuan.' That the main portion must be under the sea. If our calculations are correct, it is about 300 yards from the peninsula. What made Alta Yuan sink under the sea? Rick asked. We can only guess, Professor Gordon said. Quangara is right at the edge of what's known as a fault plain. There's a great deal of volcanic action in the area, many earthquakes. Some such action doubtless dropped the major part of the island into the ocean and left only the highest spots. Kwangara is a single mountain peak, and nearby is Little Kwangara, which is only a huge rock thrusting out of the ocean. In between the two is a valley. Alta Yuan is somewhere in that valley. Hobot Sarkhan asked, Are the present inhabitants of Kwangara Polynesian? Largely, Dr. Ward replied, but they have a good deal of mongoloid blood. Strange people. Since Quangara is very isolated, they've had little contact with civilization. They still cling to the old beliefs. Not head-hunting, I hope, Scotty said. How come the war didn't bother them? A great many islands had no contact with the war, Gordon answered. Quangara is too rocky for an airfield, too small for a base, and there are better ship anchorages and island groups not very far away. Perhaps patrols landed, looked the place over. There was no reason for staying there. It's funny for us to be hunting a lost temple after the things we've been working on, Rick mused. It's a long way from the Tibet radar relay to a little hunk of real estate in the Pacific. Harts and Brandt laughed. It is a change, Rick, but let's not underestimate the value of what we're doing. If the submobile proves as excellent a salvage machine as we hope, it will be very useful. And new refinements can be added from our experiences on this trip. He smiled to Dr. Warren. If we can help a fellow group of scientists while trying out our new equipment, that gives the expedition added value. I trust it will be a successful voyage, too, Dr. Warren said. Successful and peaceful, Rick added. There's no reason to think it won't be peaceful, is there? Dr. Warren asked. No, sir. I guess not, Rick replied. But he had his fingers crossed. CHAPTER Six: THE HIGH SEAS A school of flying fish broke water with a great thrashing of tails, heading away from the tarpon's bow. Most of them plopped back into the waves after a flight of only a few yards, but Rick watched one glide between the wave crests for a good two hundred feet. I used to think stories about flying fish were fairy tales, Chatter remarked. they real enough, Scotty said. Watching them is about the only excitement you're going to find this far out to sea. This fella, him belong pigeon, Rick added, grinning. He was fast learning Oterra's queer lingo, and that was what the native cook called flying fish. The three boys leaned on the rail, letting the hot sun darken their skins. After twelve days at sea, dressed only in shorts and moccasins, Rick and Scotty were as brown as Chata. Four more days to Quadgara, Rick mused. I'm anxious to get there. This life-on-the-ocean waves gets pretty dull. He had checked the chart after the noon position shots were figured. They were roughly halfway between Guam and the northern Palau Islands. Otera came out of the galley and tossed a bucket of slops over the side. Rick hailed him. Otera, What fella belong us Kai Kai tonight? The native cook grinned widely. God, I'm pigeon kai kai Fashion belong white man. Translated from the Beche de Mer, that meant fried chicken. Rick had learned that pigeon meant anything with wings, from fish to airplanes. The boys were continually amused by Otara's language, and since they were friendly, he had become fond of them. At the moment, Turk Malane came out of the pilot house, and Rick saw the instant change in Otara. The native cook's smile vanished, and he turned and almost ran back to the galley. Turk's hard voice stopped him. Otera! Yes, master, the cook replied timidly. Roast this fella lop lap along you, Turk ordered. As he passed the boys, he muttered, the native swine. Wouldn't change clothes until they rotted off unless you told them to. Rick was thoughtful as they leaned on the rail again. Turk had ordered Otera to change his apron, which was slightly soiled. But not soiled enough to call forth such a comment. Here's a lad with a nice, friendly disposition, he muttered. Scotty grunted. Remember I told you to ask me in a week whether I liked Turk or not? Okay, ask me now. Do you like him? No. Me also, Shada nodded. And Rick agreed with him. In the days since the tarpon had sailed from Honolulu, Turk's affability had entirely vanished. He no longer made a pretense of friendship. It was as though his good manners had been put on like a coat and removed once they were at sea. But even though the captain was curt and irritable, no one couldn't find fault with his seamanship. The trawler ran like a well oiled machine. Nor was there any evidence of disloyalty. The search of the ship before leaving had proved negative. Everything was in order, and Turk had cooperated fully, almost eagerly in aiding the scientists and setting up the diving equipment. Even though Professor Gordon had inspected the winches of their engines before leaving, Turk had insisted on personally tearing them down, cleaning them, inspecting each part, and putting them together again in tip-top working shape. Don't be too careful, he said shortly. Lives will depend on those winches. Digger Sears and the crew seemed to take their cue from Turk. They were all solid and spoke only when spoken to. As a result, the Tarpon, while a well-operated ship, could scarcely be called a jolly one. Rick told himself it didn't matter as long as all went smoothly. With the passing of time, he had come to believe that the incidents concerning the Japanese with the broken nose must have been an unimportant coincidence. Professor Gordon called to him. Rick, you want to do a job for me? Yes, sir. What is it? That fluoride powder hasn't been mixed yet. If you want to tackle that now, I'll give you the proportions. Scotty and Chata can help you collect the tooth powder. Rick got the tins of fluoride powder and borrowed a set of kitchen measuring spoons from Oterra, along with a pan for the mixing. Scotty and Chada started collecting the individual cans of tooth powder from the cabins. Scotty brought back a handful of powder cans and Rick sat down on the hatch cover next to the winches and started mixing according to the formula Gordon had given him. On the open deck aft, Harts Brandt and Hobart Zircon were at work on the submobile, completing the installations. The steel protection plates had been removed, showing the fused quartz observation windows, one on the starboard side and the other on the nose, slightly to port. The scoop had been installed on one side of the blunt nose, and the scientists were just putting the extension arms in place on the other side, under the front observation window. Between the two salvage implements was the shining brass ball of the sonoscope. A searchlight was set into the nose under the sonoscope, its lens flush with the surface. One of the bronze propellers had been installed on the stern of the submobile, while the others projected from the sides two-thirds of the way forward. All of the exterior apparatus was operated by electric motors set within the hull. Levers controlled the propellers, while the scoop and salvage arms were operated from within by pistol grips with motor control buttons in place of triggers. Gordon had gone below deck to start the big diesel generator. In a moment, Hartson Brandt climbed in through the open door of the submobile and tested the arms. Rick stopped his mixing to watch. The extension arms moved forward together, then individually. Then Mr. Brandt moved them vertically, one at a time. Satisfied with the test, the scientists started putting away their tools. That does it, Sir Con boomed, except for final tests of the propellers. And that will have to wait until we get the thing into the water. We should have everything installed and checked tomorrow. Charler returned, carrying three cans of tooth powder. His usually pleasant face was angry. I got everyone except Turks, he said, handing the cans to Rick. What happened? Rick asked quickly. I went into Turks' cabin to get his powder, and he sees me and yells, Get out of there, you little beggar! So I do not get his cabin. Rick started to stand up, anger burning in him. If Turk insisted that no one went into his cabin... He could at least be civil about it. Please, do not say anything, Charler said quickly. No trouble. It is Dirk's cabin. He says don't go in, so I don't. That is all. He's right, Scotty said. No use making an issue out of it. Rick subsided, knowing they were right. In a few days, the trawler would arrive in Quangara and the experiment would get underway. An open feud with the captain wouldn't make things any easier. Scotty and Chad helped him pour the mixture of fluoride and tooth powder back into the individual cans. There was a lot of the mixture left over, and a full can of fluoride powder. Rick called to Professor Gordon, who was inspecting the packing of one of the propeller shafts. No use waste in it, Gordon said, when Rick had shown him the surplus powder. See if you can find a can with a cover. Maybe Otera has a coffee jar or something. Dewey and Huey, two of the crew, were the galley drinking coffee. The sailors looked up as Rick entered, then looked away, during his presence. They hadn't spoken more than ten words during the entire trip. Do you have an empty coffee jar? Rick asked Oterra Then, at the cook's confused look, he tried to put it into beche de main. You got him one fella box? Him belong coffee? Oterra nodded. Suddenly he went to a cupboard, and brought out a clean coffee jar with a screw top. Rick thanked him and went out on the deck very thoughtful. There had been a change in since leaving the port. At first, he had been perpetually smiling, with some weird little toot in his lips as he worked. He still smiled when there was no one around except the boys. But when Turk, Digger, or the crew were nearby, he was quiet and nervous as a frightened rabbit. He's scared stiff, Rick surmised. What is he scared of? Being beaten, probably. Digger was a heavy-handed mate, although he had shown no outward signs of brutality since Hartson Brandt had spoken with him. Turg and the three crew members were also tough customers. Rick wouldn't put it past them to take a whack at the cook if anything displeased him. He resolved to keep his eyes open for any sign that Otero was being secretly kicked into submission. He put the extra mixture of tooth powder and fluoride into the coffee jar and screwed the cover on tightly, then took it below to stow with the camping supplies and medical equipment. Scotty and Chata were returning the tooth powder cans to the cabins of their owners. A roar from the deck brought Brick topside again. Turk Belaine was bellowing orders. All hands! Smartly blast it! Secure all loose gear and batten down! Rick ran out of the deck and saw everyone galvanized into hurried activity. A stern, a line of squall was bearing down on them, a solid line of black clouds against the sky. Hartson Brandt called, Help us with the hatch cover, quickly. Rick and Scotty ran to him. Chada was helping Professor Gordon get tools and equipment below deck. The wiring of the sonoscope is exposed, Zircon boomed. We must get the hatch on it, or it will get wet. The big scientist was working at the block and tackle that had been rigged for the hatch cover, a 200-pound circle of heavy steel, much like a manhole cover. The hatch cover had to be lifted with the block and tackle, then pushed into place over a circle of bolts that projected from the submobile. Rick helped Zircon untangle the block and tackle while Rick jumped and caught the dangling hook. In a moment, the tackle was free. "'and Scotty slipped the hook through the ring of the massive cover. "'Now!' Zircon bellowed. "'He threw his weight on the rope "'while Hartz and Brandt and the two boys guided the cover "'toward the circle of bolts. "'The cover struck, bounced off, tearing loose from their hands. "'And then the squall struck. "'The trawler shuddered under the combined force of wind and sea "'and rocked up on her beam ends. "'She dove deep.' Her nose buried in a sudden swell. Water cascaded down the deck. Rick jumped to help Zircon, water running around his ankles. The wind whipped the top from the nearby waves, and salt spray and rain slashed into his face. The heavy cover was dancing in the air, just short of the fringe of bolts. Zircon braced himself and tugged, Rick helping. Then the trawler buried her nose in another swell, and water crashed down onto the deck. Rick tried for a more secure footing, and the rubber soles of his moccasins betrayed him. His feet shot out from under him, and a sudden roll of the ship threw him heaving against the metal cradle of the submobile. He was on his feet instantly, feeling pain shoot through him. He ignored it and jumped back to where Zircon was holding fast on the rope. The trawler climbed to the top of a swell and hesitated for a heartbeat before plunging into another trough. The brief hesitation was just enough for Scotty and Harts and Brant to slide the hatch cover over the bolts. Scotty held it in place while the scientists spun on the wing nuts. All right! Harts and Brant yelled above the noise of the crashing water. Get to cover! Rick and Zircon let go of the rope, and Rick started for the companionway that led below decks. His leg buckled under him; he fell heavily against Zircon. The big scientist scooped him up and carried him to shelter. Scotty and Hartson Brandt hurried anxiously behind.